Support for WFIU News comes from Bunger and Robertson, Attorneys at Law, celebrating 75 years, helping foreign-born Hoosiers navigate immigration laws, Mandarin-speaking legal counsel available. Information at lawbr.com. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with experts about Indiana's wetlands and proposed, proposed bills in the Indiana General Assembly. Our guests today are Will Ditzler, who was the chair of Indiana's Wetlands Task Force, which was established after the 2021 legislation on wetlands, and Rochelle Baker, who's a professional wetland scientist and president and founder of Little River Consultants. If you have questions or comments for us, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. So, Lori, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks Great for, to be here. Thanks for being here, and thank you uh, both for be, Will and Rochelle for being with us today. I want to start with Rochelle. The uh, it, the issue of wetlands has been um, it's been involved. I mean, the legislature has been involved in this issue for for many years in various various forms and. This year, there are two bills that are working their way through the legislature. Could you just describe to us what each of those bills does? Sure. Uh, I want to say thank you for covering this today and happy World Wetland Day. <laughs> thank um, you. <clears throat> the, the bill I'm most familiar with is um, House Bill 1383. This is a bill that kind of follows up on Senate Bill 389 from 2021, where um, some definitions of wetlands were adjusted um, to allow for more exemptions and um, for some of the definitions, there was some overlap. Um, there was a lot of subjectivity. And so Senate Bill 1383 was, was initially intended to um, clean up those definitions um uh but they did go a step further than just cleaning those up and um made some fairly significant changes to how wetlands are regulated in indiana that bill has passed easily through the house um and passed with um some reservations out of uh, the senate environmental affairs committee um and then i guess we'll go to a second hearing to the full Senate at some point soon. Um, the other bill is Senate Bill 246, and this is a bill that is intended to give some tax breaks um, to landowners that have wetlands on their property. I'm far less familiar with this bill, um, but I do know that it kind of uh, lumps wetlands in with the wildland um, tax credits, and in um, that way can promote um, preservation of our existing wetlands. So before we uh, move on and get some comments from Will and get some questions from Lori, and I wanted to, to just set this conversation. Rochelle, why should our listeners be concerned about this issue? Wetlands is, are, are not something that, you know, the, that Hoosiers, most Hoosiers would think about or talk about on a routine basis. Why is this such a hot button issue? Right, yeah. 
Um, I think that wetlands are kind of underestimated um, and a lot of people view them as something that's in the way of of what they would prefer to happen, which is um, development. Um, and so the, the reasons wetlands are important in Indiana, they, they serve so many different functions. Um, they clean up our surface water so that um, our streams are running cleaner. Um, they provide habitat to threatened and endangered species. Um, the big one at this point, in my opinion, is that they're going to be part of the solution to how our storm events and rainfall is changing. Indiana is getting a lot more rain now uh, than historically. Um, and that rain is coming in really large events in the spring and the fall during planting and harvest. And then we're going through extended dry periods and even droughts um, through the growing season. And one thing that can kind of help combat those problems is um, depressional storage in the watershed to our stream. So wetlands provide that depressional storage. They take these big rainfall events and they hold the water back and delay that water getting to the stream, which decreases flash floods decreases um, the amount of um, scouring that happens within the channels that receive that water. And then they slowly release it to the groundwater and that props up the groundwater level. And so then when things get drier and hotter, then that groundwater can move laterally and continue to feed our streams even when there's not been rain. So this kind of um, attenuation of our extreme weather that's been happening over the past several years is, in my opinion, one of the most mm -hmm. overlooked and yet one of the most important functions of wetlands. And those are functions that even farmed wetlands, wetlands that are not free to look at, wetlands that most people would not even recognize as wetlands, those are critical for that function. Um, and we have so many of them in what's currently cropped land, and they all work together to kind of be this attenuation to these extreme events. I should mention at this point that we did invite Rick Wajda, Wajda sorry, uh, the CEO from the Indiana Builders Association, to join us on the program today because he has a maybe a little different concept or different view of some of this legislation, and he declined to join us. So um, I want to go to Will. So Will, uh, you were the pre the uh, chairman of the task force that was created after 2021's changes. So I wonder if, if you've been following these bills closely, and if so, do they reflect some of the work of the task force? Yeah, so I I'm not, have not followed them as closely as Rochelle, but I um, uh, but, but in terms of how they how they align with the task force recommendations. Um, the second bill that provides uh, tax incentive does align with our recommendations. Um, I don't think it goes far enough, but it, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, from my understanding, it would make that these even smaller wetlands eligible for the classified uh, wildlands and classified forest program, which in essence, um, if, if it's, I, I haven't read the bill in detail, but if it's like the classified wildlands, it basically reduces the the assessed value of that acreage to minimal so that you, you don't have to pay property taxes. Um, so that that kind of thing is consistent with what we recommended. Um, I think we need more than that. Uh, to Rochelle's point, we we are void of uh, storage in the up, upper parts of our landscape here in Indiana. So in the in the you know our watersheds are devoid of a lot of the wetlands that were naturally there. And so we need to not just uh, you know, protect the ones that are left, but we also need to be restoring large scale um, areas. And our task force felt like a good way to do that was through voluntary incentives. Um, so uh, as far as the first bill, the house bill, um, you know, I think it's all in the details, right? I, I think that uh, to Rochelle's point, there was a lot of ambiguity 
in the classifications um, from last year's revisions to to uh, to the bill, and and so it it's it left a lot of confusion for the consultants and for the and for the uh, regulators and the regulated public, uh, particularly around the class three definition. Um, but really through all the class one, class two, class three, Rochelle can talk a little bit about those classes and why they matter. But, um, you know, I think the idea of, of creating less ambiguity um, and more consistency and, uh, is a good idea. Um, but as to whether they did a good job of it, a lot of people have concern with it. I think in general, the builders are happy with the, the proposed uh, bill, and that's why it's doing so well. Uh, but a lot of the environmental community um, is not is not as pleased with with the uh, the proposed changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we actually just you brought up the question about or the the definition of class one, class two, class three, and uh, Rochelle, if you could just quickly give us a sense of what what are those distinctions and how differently are they regulated? Sure. Um, so there's three classifications. Class one is considered the lowest quality and class three is considered the highest quality. Um, and then there's also sort of this other group, which is um, wetlands on cropland. Um, and wetlands on cropland have been exempted for home building, uh, for development for homes. Um, so those wouldn't require a permit at all. Um, class one wetlands, which are viewed as low quality, um, are also exempted. Um, so they are not regulated at all. Um, class two has is kind of considered the middle of the road um and it has some pretty large exemptions based on the size of the wetland um and then if you exceed that size then you can um you need to get a permit and you might have to do mitigation and mitigation is that you try to uh, mitigate your impacts by replacing wetlands somewhere else um and then class three was is kind of viewed as you know almost untouchable. So these are wetlands that are high quality, um, kind of rare, have taken decades to form, sometimes hundreds of years to form, would be nearly impossible to replace, certainly within our lifetime. Um, and those are given, I mean, there's no absolute stop to being able to um, impact those, but those are given the most protection. And so 1383 um, moved some of the, the rare and, and important wetland types uh, into this kind of subclass three category where, you know, if they fall on this list, but they're um, more than minimally disturbed, then they get kicked back up into class two and then they can be developed and they may or may not even require mitigation. So this classification system, and I testified to this to the Senate committee a couple days ago, looking at how this classification system works. In my 30 years of doing delineations, there are not a lot of wetlands that are going to still be protected by this bill in Indiana, mm -hmm. unless they're super high quality, in which case they're probably already within a land trust holding or DNR property or something like that that's already under some other form of protection. So, yeah, I was just going to ask where where these are. Again, for those of us who, you know, we may just not see them as we're driving or around um, doing what we're doing. Uh, are these are the what have been considered the most high quality wetlands? Are they do they tend to be in the southern part of the state mainly, or are they all over? Um, there's different types, and some types are you know more 
common up north and some are more common down mm -hmm. south. So okay. like a, a sinkhole swamp, that would be where we have sinkholes around, you know, Bedford and southern Indiana. Right. Um, and where we have cave systems. Um, and then like fens, you might be more likely to find a fen up north. Um, some other things on the list are bogs, seeps. And, you know, they're on this list because they would be very difficult to replace. Um, and then the other things that have been kind of moved down to a less protected class three, I guess, um, are could be found anywhere throughout the state. Yeah. Can, you probably both can speak to this, but what is the, uh, the you know, 2021 was uh, a moment when uh, not only uh, Indiana changed its wetlands law, but there was a Supreme Court decision that removed some of the protections that private landowners, um, private landowners were given more leeway and freedom to um, basically destroy wetlands. Um, so that's now four years ago or three years ago. Uh, what's the, why are these coming up now? Why have these emerged at this time? Is it just, or have they been bubbling along for a bit and are just emerging now? And again, Will, you can probably speak to this as well. Yeah, you mean, why are these issues coming right, up now? Right, right. Yeah. Why now? They've been debating this for um, for decades, this isolated non-isolated issue. There was a Supreme Court case in 2001 that addressed this issue as well and tried to pull back protections. But then the Corps of Engineers was able to establish um, rules that that dampened a lot of that court through basically tile connections or, or other ways. And so they, they sort of uh, maintained a lot, a lot of their authority. But this, sec this bill, um, you know, I don't think that the Corps has that opportunity. So it, it is, I think, more impactful. But they've been debating this isolated, non-isolated issue for for 30 years. And basically what that means is um, if a wetland is adjacent and, and directly connected to a navigable water like the Wabash River or the White River, then it's federally protected. If it's isolated from um, navigable waters of the U.S., that's isolated and a lot of the wetlands we have left in indiana are isolated and that's why people are concerned with these um, bills that are weakening protections because um, a lot of our remaining wetlands are, are are isolated so isolated would be like a um you know a wetland that's removed from any uh, uh, navigable waters and uh, streams and rivers and things like that so they're more maybe up in the up in the uh in the landscape removed from those. So, um, yeah. And Rashad, I don't know if, if there's anything you want to add to that. Sure. Um, yeah. So like Will said in, in sometime around 2004, there was, uh, another Supreme court ruling called the swank decision. And I think that's what was that solid waste agency of like cook County. So it was up around Chicago, I think. And it, it dealt with a, a gravel quarry or something like that that somebody wanted to fill. I'm, it's been a while ago. Anyway, that was the onus for uh, Indiana's original um, state regulated wetland law. Um, before that, we didn't think about, is it adjacent? Is it not adjacent? Is it isolated? Um, everything was regulated by the core. So once um, the core kind of lost some jurisdiction, Indiana, you know, kind of filled the gap. Um, and then things kind of set still for a long time. Um, and so I, in my opinion, this is a lot of opinion here. Um, when Obama tried to define, you know, what constitutes adjacent versus or connected versus isolated, he started a pendulum swinging. And I think some people started to recognize that this could be um, a topic that kind of could rally people behind them in one direction or another. Um, and so that has kind of started happening within the state as well. So our 2004, 2005, whatever it was, original state rule, you know, set unchanged for 20 years, almost 20 years. Um, and then 389 came along. 
Um, and I, I think that, you know, there's a certain group that has some sway <laughs> in our legislature and that they're starting to exercise that in trying to um, affect some regulations such as wetland regulation. If you want to join our conversation today about uh, wetlands and wetlands regulations here in Indiana and, and legislation, you can send us your questions or comments to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So I want to break this down into something very basic, I guess. You were talking, Rochelle, about how this may may rally people on on different sides of, of the issue. Is this an issue of um, business and business, business regulation versus environmentalism? Is that what we're talking um, about? I, I, I think that's how it's being framed. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I don't really completely understand the um, the onus for 389, which was the original bill that that changed, or the uh, the second bill that that changed the original 2004 rule. Um, I, I'm not really sure what started that, other than um, that some developers were tired of having to worry about what they considered wet spots in a cornfield. Um, so it, it's kind of been introduced as you know it's us versus them but i'm 30 years i've worked for developers i've worked for home builders i've worked for you know the state of indiana and i think most people that do what i do and and know what i know understand that there's no stopping progress and there's no need to stop progress but what we have to do is you know work within the environment that we're given and so, I mean, that's the whole idea behind mitigation, that we're not going to stand in the way of progress, but in return, we have to make sure that we're still protecting the functions that our ecological systems provide. And so the compromise has always been progress can go on with mitigation for your impacts. And so these most recent bills have kind of swung that pendulum to, we don't even want to mitigate for our impacts. We just want to be able to forget about it and not worry about it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, it's it's too confusing and it's too subjective and it's unpredictable and it's slow. But um, Representative Arrington offered an amendment during the House committee meetings, and that amendment is streamlined, it's predictable, it's not subjective, it has specific timelines to it, and it would cut about five steps out of the process compared to 1389, and it wasn't really even given a second look. So. I don't think that it's about predictability or efficiency. I think it's about we just don't want to, we don't think these are worth worrying about. That's uh, Rochelle Baker, who's a professional wetland scientist and president and founder of Little River Consultants. She's one of our guests today. The other guest is Will Ditzler, chair, who is the chair of the Indiana's Wetlands Task Force. I want to go back to Will for a minute because, you know, Rochelle just brought up some regulatory uh, process or some streamlining some processes. That was one of the highlights from the meeting reports that you had. There was a, a point about streamlining regulatory processes and paperwork and that they were that was an important thing to do. Um, but I want to mention two other things uh, in framing this conversation. And one of the highlights from your meetings and reports of this task force that was created after the 2021, uh, legislation was that flooding frequency and costs are increasingly due to the historical and cumulative loss of Indiana wetlands, including isolated west wetlands. And then another point, the cumulative loss of wetlands, along with the increase in annual precipitation and changes to our weather and rain, rainfall patterns with climate change, are a critical issue that requires more than a regulatory program approach. So I guess I'm asking you, Will, 
as a person who was you know in charge of this or you know leading this task force, you know, getting them together, talking to them, helping them get through this process, those seem like two huge issues that um, people who are overseeing our our state government, you know, they they would have an impact on everybody if reducing wetlands is causing more flooding and um, climate change is going to be causing more flooding and the reduction of wetlands is going to just exacerbate this problem. I, I'm just I'm wondering why how we got here base when you base when these kind of very stark comments are in your report. I don't know if you have an answer for that but well yeah not yeah I'm not, I'm not an answer I have some comments. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah I mean this is I think um this kind of is it represents the our our whole country and the debate around um, the, the importance of the environment and, and government's role, right? I mean, there's just very different views on that. Um, the reality is, you know, when you look at the science, and we had several scientists on our task force, the science is clear. Um, I mean, much like the issue of climate change, where you know, there's there's arguments and debates about that, but the science is clear on that issue, and the science is clear on our uh, rainfall patterns um, and and so and the flooding issues right and so i just think that our current um, legislators don't that's just not a priority issue for them in spite of the fact that it is impacting all constituents it impacts builders farmers you know it, it impacts everybody um, municipalities but their constituents for the most part, aren't voting them in the office to deal with that kind of stuff, right? They're voting them in the office to deal with whatever other issues um, that are priorities, right? The economy, the maybe the the social issues that they that they prioritize, and so these environmental issues always have gotten um, less prioritization um, nationally and 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 particularly here in Indiana. And so it, it you know it's frustrating for people that care about the environment and conservation. Um, but that's that's where we are. And I think much like a lot of these other issues, it, it kind of has to get to a crisis or point before we deal with it. But at that point, you know, it's a lot it's a lot harder. One of the things we put in our report is that the regulatory programs, although important, and we specifically stated that we believe Indiana should have a wet, uh, state wetlands program because there's a debate about that as well, right? Whether we should even have a program, not all states do. We specifically stated that we do think a regulatory program um, should be in place, um, but that's not in and of itself is not enough because we've already lost, you know, the statistic I've always heard was 85, 87% of our wetlands are already lost. So protecting through mitigation, uh, a portion of the remaining ones is important, but it's not enough. We really literally need to build tens of thousands of acres of wetlands uh, throughout the state. And to do that would require significant uh, funding and, and prioritization from our state. Um, Ohio has a program called H2O where they, are, uh, they have hundreds of millions of dollars being put into water quality and, and, and water issues. And I think part of what spurred that was when Lake Erie um, you know, had that issue where it contaminated the, the drinking water. And so that kind of a, a crisis, you know, results in some change. We, we just don't have that kind of motivation in Indiana right now. Yeah, I wanted I'd to, like to go ahead, Rochelle. Can I chime in please. on that? Um, I think that one of the problems that we deal with in Indiana is that people are very protective of their own property and they want to have you know property rights to do whatever they want to do with their property it's their property um and there's very little understanding of what impacting a wetland does off your property and so when you don't understand the impacts of of um, loss of wetlands and what that means for your downstream neighbors including all the way downstream to new orleans um, and the Gulf of Mexico and and how it's affecting, you know, um, recreation and their economy. When you can't, you know, 
connect those two dots that what I do on my property with regard to wetlands affects everyone downstream of me, then, then that's the beginning of our problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and as far as the flooding, you know, that flooding is something that everyone sees it's, it's dramatic. It makes, you know, good footage. And, um, but the other side of that same coin is drought and wetlands ironically are the solution to both. So I think the Mississippi river hit record lows the past two Octobers, 2022 and 2023. So now we're talking about affecting shipping and exporting, and that's becoming, you know, another industry that's impacted by um, the fact that the Midwest states are, are not protecting their groundwater levels. Um, and so, um, you know, wetlands, we don't have enough left to be the only solution, but, you know, conservation and restoration of wetlands needs to be part of the solution because it's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's far cheaper than the infrastructure type projects, the wastewater treatment plants, the water treatment plants, the flood control projects, the tunneling <laughs> under Indianapolis. Um, you know, those are those are big ticket items. So that's why wetlands need to be a big part of the solution. Yeah. Right. Well, I was good. So I was going to sort of turn to this whole issue of cost in a, in a number of um, dimensions. We actually have a question that's come in by uh, by email, um, but w which has to do with you know what what the alternatives are if we don't have wetlands to deal with flooding mitigation and what would that cost? Uh, and you've you've obviously spoken to a great deal of that we know that those are going to be very expensive and um, and I. Taking from what you said, that it's cheaper for us to preserve the wetlands we have as part of the mitigation solution, build on that, than it is if we got rid of all of our wetlands and then we had to deal with putting in mitigation systems would be would be tremendously costly. Uh, is that a fair a fair summary of of what you're saying here? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, with the flooding, you're talking about blowing out bridges, um, undermining roads. Um, overwhel overwhelming uh, combined sewer systems, overwhelming wastewater treatment systems, um, and there's um, crop there's loss like, as well. There, yeah, crop loss. Um, so, I mean, the impacts are far and wide when it comes to flooding. But you know, on on the drought side, now you're talking about fisheries. You're talking about shipping. You're again talking about crop loss um, when our groundwater drops so low that it's no longer feeding our streams, that's not accessible to our crops. And so now you're talking about putting in a combination of tile drainage to deal with all the rain in the spring and the fall, and, and then maybe pivot irrigation to deal with the drought through the growing season. Um, so, uh, you know, in lieu of all of these, if, if you look at downtown Indianapolis, they've done huge basins to control the flooding um and underground tunneling to for storage but you know that the game can't be oh my gosh let's get all this water off the landscape as fast as we can you know it it has to be let's hold it back from the streams you know as long as we can in the least destructive way that we can mm -hmm. um and then let it slowly filter on toward the streams yeah yeah. Well, so some of the solutions to flooding are exacerbating our drought problems. Right. Well, I was going to just kind of following through more on this cost question that sooner or later, and, and probably this is already happening, but it's hard to trace, is that ultimately there are costs to individual landowners and frankly, all of us, because property tax affects property taxes, I would imagine. Uh, the cost of transportation, the cost of so many things that we wind up paying for as consumers, but may not be connecting to some of these, the, the fact that we don't have these natural systems to deal with problems that we then have to have costly solutions for. Ultimately, we all wind up paying for that. Uh, and, right. you know, that's, that's another point that probably those dots aren't necessarily being connected by the people who want to see the, re the regulations lifted. That's right. Yeah. The other thing about wetlands as a solution is there's a lot of 
additional benefits in terms of wildlife habitat and and uh, you know biodiversity that you're not going to have with a retention pond or mm-hmm. or you know me- mechanical or engineering solutions. So you know this is the way nature um, built was was built to to uh, to work, and so we're always better working with natural solutions. Yeah. I, one thing I did want to bring up about costs. I mean, the builders aren't on here uh, on the call; they declined. Um, but I, in terms of, there was a question earlier about what what was the what was the drive for Senate Bill three eighty nine. And I think if you if, if they were here, they would they would say two things uh, or a couple things: time and money, right? So mitigating wetlands. Um, I think there were examples that they would point to where maybe you know millions of dollars were spent on something that to their view wasn't really um warranted of that kind of the cost they would say that the cost benefit ratio of some of the mitigation was not good and that and that the time it came when they did testify at our uh, task force time was very a big thing and i think they have they have uh, complaints or concerns about items um permitting processes in terms of time and then also the cost benefit of the mitigation so I'm not I'm not saying one way or another whether that's right, but I did want to bring that up mm-hmm. as to you know, what that why why these bills even came into place in the first place as there was a lot of frustration on those issues. Yeah, and, and then I think yeah. there is some you know like anything right there is some truth to that. It, it, I mean I I was in this business for 20 years and representing some of these people like Rochelle does, and there are times when it was like wow this is frustrating. So there is that side of it. Um, but it's just a matter of how far the pendulum swings, right? And a lot of people, Rochelle and environmental people, including our task force, feel like you know it's it's swing it's swung back too far. Yeah, right. Well, I I would agree with that, and I would also say that 1389 is not more predictable. It's not. It's more subjective. It's not going to speed things up. It's not going to provide more. Um, efficiency, time and expense is still going to be it, it. I would say it could be even worse than what 389 uh, created with the back and forth between a consultant that's trying to help someone get a permit and IDEM saying, I think it's this. No, I think it's this. And there's really nothing that uh, anyone can point to to back up their arguments because the definitions are so I mean, it, it, the, the definitions include l- words like more than minimal and less than minimal when it comes to impacts to function. So, or um, you know, previous impacts. So that kind of language is not going to speed things along. The bill that or the amendment that Representative Arrington offered up did away with classes altogether, and so that ambiguity went away. Um, and then, as far as mitigation. Um, you know, if if a permit applicant does their own mitigation, they now own a wetland. They have to monitor that wetland for possibly 10 years. They have to maintain it and they have to provide long term protection and maintenance. So um, Arrington's bill says the first option is to use a bank or um, the in lieu fee program that Indiana now has. And so really, that bill speeds the process. It takes the mitigation headache out of the permittees' hands. You just pay a fee to, to DNR, um, and they take care of your mitigation for you in a way that is, you know, protected long term and has better outcomes. Um, in in my time doing this, I have seen thousands of acres of complete failures of mitigation sites thousands of acres. So putting it into DNR's hands is, in my opinion, a step in the right direction, doing the mitigation, having that in DNR's hands. Um, but it also takes a lot of the headache out for the developer. Um, so so I think Arrington's bill addresses all of the problems that um, that builders say they have with the, with the process. And I think 1383 actually makes it all worse. We've had a couple of comment about the in lieu of program. Absolutely. So, cause that was one of the things our task force um, looked at and um, what Rochelle's talking about is, is 
pooling mitigation together in bigger projects, either private mitigation banks, or in this case, kind of a state mitigation bank, if you want to call it that, but it's called the in lieu fee mitigation. Um, and, you know, a lot of these small uh, developer done mitigations don't work, they're expensive. They also don't like doing it. So they were very happy with to have the in lieu fee program. And most of them, at least from the, what we heard at the task force are choosing that option. The concern the task force brought up, and I think it's important for people in the environmental community to understand this, the DNR, obviously, a lot of great people there. I've worked with them for years. Their, their timeliness of implementing the mitigation from that money was not good at the time uh, that our task force was met. So I think at that time they had 60 million in credits and they hadn't built anything. They hadn't built any streams or wetlands. And so we put in our report that we think it's really important that this IDNR program that Rochelle's saying, um, you know, is a better solution um, that actually they actually implement it well and build things. Because if you if you fill a wetland and it takes DNR five years to replace it, you lost the functions and values for five years. Um, so theoretically, the DNR, I think, is a is a good option. But the at the time our task force met their uh, effectiveness um, at, at actually completing the mitigation was not good. Now, I don't know in the last two years, if that's improved, maybe Rochelle can comment on that. But I think it's important, you know, we can we can do mitigation in whatever ratios and classes you want, but if the money that gets spent to do the mitigation isn't used, then, we're, then we have another problem, right? Yeah, let me follow up on that a bit, just to make sure, I, I'm pretty sure I understand this, but the in lieu of mitigation, in lieu fee mitigation, program sounds to me like, you know, in Bloomington, we used to have an in lieu of annexation where some, instead of uh, somebody being annexed, they would have to pay a fee to government to help government take care of the problem, right? Sounds like the same right. thing. Okay. Um, and yeah, and, and your one of the highlights from your report says in, the in lieu of in lieu fee mitigation programs, popular with the regulated public, saves time for developers, allows for larger pooled mitigation areas, but is undersourced and behind in fulfilling mitigation obligations, which is exactly what you just said. Just wanted to reiterate that's in your report. Um, so we have a, from our producer, he said one of the main points brought up in an interview with with uh, Rick Wajda from the Indiana Builders Association was the idea of wanting to make sure people had an incentive to come to Indiana and build, to come and build and expand. And he, and you know, will, is this bill, and this kind of blends into another question I had, is this bill, 1383, a compromise? It's been being billed as a compromise between the builders and IDEM. They, the builders and IDEM view it as a compromise. Is it a compromise? Will it help um, incentivize builders and developers to come to Indiana? Well, I, I mean, IDEM was actively involved with this um, legislative wording um, as well as a lot of a lot of consultants that were asked, they obviously can't couldn't ask everybody. Um, I was in an early meeting with it, and then it, it was very technical, and so I didn't add any value. Um, it's disappointing to hear Rochelle say that it doesn't make things more streamlined and less ambiguity because that was what they were working on, um, and and they spent I, I know they spent hours and hours and hours looking at you know past permits in the last year or two and trying to improve uh, improve it so i you know Rochelle knows more about the technical details than i do it's it's it, it's too bad if that's not the case that that was the intent um in terms of does it i, I think it's it sounds like it's a more builder friendly bill so if, in terms of attracting uh builders to the state for economic development i, I think this probably reduces the the costs for builders and uh, reduces wetland protections. And then, you know, on the other side of that is, it, it, it sounds like it also unfortunately reduces uh, isolated wetland protections further um, to Rochelle's point. So that, that would be my thoughts on that okay. question. All right, Rochelle, you wanna add I anything? would say, yeah, I would say that um, 
it certainly makes it easier for home builders um, to get projects through. Um, there are a lot of cases where they're not going to need a permit at all. Um, but ironically, they'll still have to go through 90% of the process to prove they don't need a, a permit. <clears throat> um, but, you know, the, the big the big companies that are um, creating high paying jobs, they're not looking for locations or states that have a lot of pavement and lax environmental laws. You know, they're looking for places where their employees are going to want to live and stay. Um, and one of the big things that's considered is, you know, what's the natural environment like? What are the environmental protections like? What's quality of life going to be like for our employees if we decide to plop our business down in Indiana? And so, you know, affordable housing at the expense of, of you know, nearly all wetlands that are impacted by affordable housing, that's, I just don't see that as a good argument. It And, and by and large, it's home building that benefits, not warehouses, not um, commercial business. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of being framed as we've got to make housing more affordable. But I'm going to tell you that the cost of mitigation is like a fraction of a fraction of the total cost of a house these days. So to say that, you know, that that it's worth not protecting our wetlands to make housing more affordable, um, to Lori's point earlier, those affordable houses are going to cause property taxes to go up. So, you know, over the long term, there's no savings there to the homeowner. I want to ask this question that's come in uh, through our producer again. My family has a line of farmers that have uh, been in Indiana for generations. Should they be concerned about wetland removal affecting their crops? Will there be certain crops they can no longer grow? Rochelle? Yeah, they should definitely be concerned, um, especially with the, the changing rainfall patterns. Um, I'm sure that they that um, the question came in from someone who's very familiar with our recent patterns. Um, I mean, I would think that I, I don't know what crops would do better in this environment. I'm sure there are people taking a serious look at that. Um, but I live surrounded by 100 acres. Well, I live surrounded by thousands of acres <laughs> of corn and beans, and um, I have seen you know, what has happened the last two summers. And I'm sure it's affecting yields. Uh, I'm sure it's causing um, more expenses by running your pivot irrigation. It's very expensive to run pivot irrigation um, with the electricity. Um, so yes, you need to be concerned. Um, and you need to probably call your senators and representatives about it. I wonder, I, just one other thing that occurred to me in terms of costs going up, um, insur insurance has to be going up too, especially with catastrophic events. To the extent that people are dealing with flooding more, there are obviously implications for um, insurance companies to have to pay out uh, when a house is no longer habitable or partly habitable. So, uh, you know, that's another element here. I don't know if at some point if the insurance, both insurance costs, but also the insurance industry, obviously state of Florida is a classic case with hurricanes coming through. Uh, it's it's increasingly difficult to get private insurance in Florida now because of those kinds of costs. So those go into the mix as well, I would think. Um, or at least we they did should have, be thought We did of. have a farmer uh, come and testify um, from southern Indiana who farms in the White River bottoms. And he was pretty uh, adamant that all these wetlands being filled up in central Indiana are flooding out his ground more 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 often. Um, and um, and so, you know, I just want to point that out in terms of the caller's question in terms of farmers. Um, he also has said that climate change is in southern Indiana um, is starting to impact the ability to farm corn down there in terms of uh, nighttime temperatures for respiration and things. 
obviously they're still growing corn in Southern Indiana, but he's concerned that if you look out, you know, several decades from now that the, the corn belt is going to move North. Um, and his family's like third generation corn farmer down in, down in that part mm-hmm. of the state. So mm-hmm. I do think, I think climate change is the big, biggest risk to farmers, but obviously this wetland issue is, is tied into it in terms of um, flood mitigation. Two minutes to go in the program. So just a last word from each of you. Is there uh, some kind of legislation you would like to see um, come out of either this session or next, the next session of the legislature on this wetlands issue? Will, I'm going to go to you first. From your task force, what needs to happen in your, in your experience from what you learned from the task force experience? Yeah, so I th- I think Indiana needs a uh, an isolated wetland uh, law, and it needs to be uh, effective. Um, in addition to that, the state of Indiana needs to um, invest significantly in voluntary and, and incentives to restore substantially more wetlands than you're going to uh, deal with in a mitigation process because we've lost so many wetlands. And so I'm talking, you know, we have had surpluses for years, right? Can we really carve out tens of millions of dollars and invest it in wetland-based um, restoration? That, that's what I think the state of Indiana should do. All right. Rochelle, we only have about 30 seconds. Any quick thoughts? I think <clears throat> bills like Glick's bill that incentivize uh, conservation restoration on private property, we'll, we're going to need a lot more of that. Um, I think we certainly need much stronger protection of wetlands in Indiana, especially in the face of lack of regulation at the federal level now. All right. We're out of time. I want to thank both of our guests, Will Ditzler, chair of Indiana's Wetlands Task Force, and Rochelle Baker, a professional wetland scientist, for being here with us to talk about Indiana's wetlands issues. For co-host Lori McRobbie, producer Nathan Moore, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region. Working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.